Hide to cowhide, America's pastime. Behind the back, it gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. Featuring your host, Ricky Litwinkowicz. Walk-off home run by Derek Jeter. He is Mr. November. Welcome back to Horsehide to Cowhide, America's pastime. I am your host, Ricky Lewinkowicz, and this week's episode is an absolutely amazing show. We actually have the date of my birthday within the show, which is not really ordinary to any other podcast that you've ever heard before. We have Dodger Blue, the birth of a national pastime website a cartoon, and more on this week's episode of Horsehide to Cowhide. Let's get into those historical dates. March 27, 1967. Giants right-hander Juan Marichal ends his 29-day holdout when he becomes the third $100,000 Major League pitcher in history joining Dodger hurlers Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale. The Dominican Dandy also reported to spring training late last season, but proceeded to win his first 10 games en route to a 25-6 record. March 27, 1981. Boston's gold glove catcher Colton Fisk is declared a free agent by Major League Baseball, much to the chagrin of the Fenway faithful. The 33-year-old backstop can now negotiate with other teams for his services because he received his contract from the Red Sox two days after the deadline. March 27, 2009. In a Kensai Independent League game played at the Osaka Dome, knuckleballer Iri Yoshida makes her debut, becoming Japan's first female professional baseball player. The 17-year-old faces two batters on opening day, walking one and striking out the other in the ninth inning of the Kobe's Cruises 5-0 victory over the hometown Gold Villicanes. The knuckle princess awaits. On the eve of history, Japan's Eri Yoshida on the steps of the Chico Outlaws dugout waits for her big moment alongside teammates joking, chatting, and tossing a ball just like any other baseball player. And out of uniform, the five-foot-one Yoshida might appear as your typical 18-year-old girl, but none have done what she embarks on. On May 29th, she will make baseball history as the first Japanese female to pitch in the United States. Eri just completed high school in Japan, and as her classmates prepare for college, she'll study former major league hitters in the lineup of the opposing Tijuana Cimarrones. March 28, 1977. Upset about losing his second base job to Bump Wills, Ranger Lenny Randall attacks and fractures his manager Frank Lucchese's cheekbone. The Ranger skipper may have triggered the episode, which occurred just before the team's exhibition game against Minnesota, by once calling the unusually 
even-tempered infielder a punk. March 28, 1978. Dick Allen's 15-year career ends with the A's, released the aging superstar. The Wampum, Pennsylvania native, finishes stormy relationship with the Major League Baseball Club with 351 home runs, 1,192 RBIs, and a 292 batting average. March 28, 1988. Four days shy of his 47th birthday, Phil Necro's 24-year Hall of Fame career comes to an end when the Yankees put him on waivers at the end of spring training. The right-handed knuckleballer, best known for his tenure with the Braves, compiled a 318-win, 274-loss record and a career 3.35 ERA while hoeing for four teams, including the Yankees, Indians, and Blue Jays. Wow, look at this. It's March 29th. It's my birthday. But we start off in March 29th, 1948. 34 players participate in an unusual long exhibition game when the Yankees and the Red Sox take 17 innings to play to a 2-2 tie. The four-hour, two-minute contest features the Bronx Bombers scoring runs in the bottom of the ninth and the tenth innings to keep the score knotted, but the team fails to push the winning run in in the final frame when Frank Crossetti attempts a two-out bunt to squeeze in a runner from third. March 29, 1975. Mel Stottlemyre, suffering from a torn rotator cuff, is given his unconditional release by the Yankees. The team's future pitching coach compiled a 164 and 139 record with a career ERA of 297, tossing 152 complete games that also included 40 shutouts. March 29, 2008. In an exhibition game celebrating the club's 50th anniversary of their move west from Brooklyn, the Dodgers lose to the Red Sox in front of 115,300 fans at the LA Coliseum. The crowd is the largest ever to watch a baseball game, surpassing the previous record when approximately 114,000 patrons attended an exhibition contest between the Australian national team and an American services team during the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne. In 2008, the Los Angeles Dodgers played an exhibition game against the Boston Red Sox in front of over 115,000 fans at the LA Coliseum. This was in celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Dodgers relocating to Los Angeles from Brooklyn, New York. The crowd of precisely 115,300 is the largest ever to watch a baseball game. That surpasses the previous record when approximately 114,000 fans attended an exhibition game between the Australian national team and American services team at the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne, Australia. The exhibition game was really to bring back some nostalgia, to really bring in the fans and the experience to go back in time a little bit. It was certainly something special. When the Dodgers first arrived in Los Angeles, 
they played at the Coliseum for four years before Dodger Stadium became their permanent home in 1962. According to ESPN, in the last baseball game that was played at the Coliseum September 20th, 1961, Sandy Koufax pitched all 13 innings of a 3-2 victory over the Chicago Cubs right before a crowd of just a little bit over 12,000 people. The Coliseum, as we know, was not built for baseball, rather for track and football. The distance from left field full, excuse me, foul for that game, was 201 feet, and the screen was obviously 60 feet high, specifically for the exhibition game. It's quite clear it was pretty difficult to make it fit in the environment of baseball. But the Dodgers wanted to do something special on the 50-year anniversary of their relocation from Brooklyn, New York to Los Angeles, California. And that exhibition game was won by the Boston Red Sox. Final score, 7-4. March 29, 2009. John Franco throws out the first ceremonial pitch to a standing ovation from the crowd attending the collegiate matchup between St. John's and Georgetown in the first baseball game to be ever played at City Field. Before tossing his signature pitch, a breaking ball in the dirt, the former Mets reliever goes to the mound wearing a familiar blue and orange jacket, removes his coat to reveal Amomata colors, a red storm jersey with his number 45. This is Enzo Pontrilli, contributor and historian for Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastime. March 29, 2009, St. John's Georgetown matchup opens City Field. The first game ever played at City Field, the rubber match of a three game series between St. John's University and Georgetown University, took place on Sunday, March 29th. The New York Mets, who will call City Field home when a regular Major League Baseball season opens are still in spring training in Florida. And so the Mets organization took the opportunity to test out the new ballpark with the Big East College game. The previous two games were played in Washington, D.C., and when the Mets organization offered the opportunity, both teams agreed to play the third game at City Field. Although the game was played in New York City, St. John's was listed as the visiting team. Georgetown defeated the Red Storm 6-4. A throng of 42,000 capacity fans is due to show up for the Mets' home opener at 7-10 on April 13. Former Mets reliever John Franco threw out the ceremonial first pitch. When Jeff Wilpon called and offered me the opportunity to throw out the first pitch, I jumped at it. Franco, a former hurling star at St. John's, and a franchise leader in saves for the New York Mets, said with a smile. He added, I think the Jackie Robinson return is great. They did an extraordinary job there. While the Red Storm and Horrors battled, most of the fans seemed more interested in walking around the ballpark and spending time in the lunges, where there were plenty of plasma TVs for viewing the action on the field. It was obvious that the ballpark was not complete, Foot markers on the outfield walls were missing, as were lids on cups for soft drinks. The Mets promised to get everything right for their inaugural home game at City Field. 
Boys starter number 30, Tim Adelman, who was 2 and 3, threw the first pitch of the game to St. John's center fielder Brian Kemp, who flew out to left. The second batter for St. John's University, designated hitter Matt Wessinger, grounded out to short on the first pitch. The third batter, right fielder Jimmy Park, grounded out to short on a 2 0 count. The St. John's starter, Set down Tommy Lee, the first boy batter, the second batter, Tom Elliott, singled sharply to center for the first hit at City Field. The first hit at City Field for St. John's was made by first baseman Tim Morris, who hit a hard liner to center field with no one out in the top of the second inning. He was followed by shortstop Jose Panic, who also singled, moving Morris to second with no out. Left fielder Carlos the Rosario, batting 323, grounded out to first, moving both runners to second and third, where they were stranded without scoring. Georgetown's Dan Capless crushed a double over the head of Del Rosario to score the first run ever at City Field, while Del Rosario had to go back to the ball to retrieve the ball. The next batter, number eight catcher Craig Pastisley, singled to left, scoring. Campus. While two runners with two runners on base and two men out, Warburton hit hit Poirier's center fielder Tommy Lee holding the bases. Lee was credited with having been the very first batter to be hit. There was no further damage, though. As the next batter flied out to center, the Hoyas led one nothing. Brian Kemp scored the first run for the Red Storm in the third inning in a bases loaded situation in which Morris grounded to second and Georgetown infielder. Andy Lentz booted the ball, allowing Kemp to score from third. Panic sent two runs home on a single to right, giving SJU a 3-1 lead. In another City League City Field first, Georgetown's Sean Lamont blasted the first City Field home run over the left field wall, about 350 feet from home plate against St. John's starter Loban. The Red Storm was led by Panic, who went 2-4 with two runs batted in, and right field Jimmy Park went 3 for 4 with one, one run scored. Georgetown's 12 hit attack was led by three players Maman, Capeless, and Pustisla, each with two hits and a run batted in. The winning pitcher was Adelman, who pitched eight innings, giving up seven, run, seven hits and four runs, three earned to gain his seventh win of the season. Wolbam went Six innings for St. John's gave up two runs on seven hits and walked only one batter. He was relieved in the seventh by Nick Senatempo, who faced only three batters and gave up three runs on three hits and took the loss for the Red Storm. Armando Pontrelli, contributor and historian for Horseside to Calhoun, America's Pastor. March 30th, 1966. Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale's refusal to report to spring training ends when the Hurlers agree to the Dodgers' offer of $235,000, signing for $130,000 and $105,000 respectively. The LA Starters' joint holdout lasts for 32 days, paving the way for other players to be more aggressive when negotiating with owners. Before the 1966 MLB season, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale both refused to report for spring training. Instead, they were both set to appear 
in a movie called Warning Shot. Drysdale was to be a TV commentator while Koufax was to portray a police detective. Obviously, the Dodgers were very unhappy about the situation, which resulted in a public relations battle between the Dodgers and Koufax and Drysdale. However, after four weeks, Koufax and Drysdale both had the go-ahead to negotiate new deals with the Dodgers. Koufax ended up getting $125,000 while Drysdale got a respectable $110,000. In the last week of spring training, both men returned to the team and participated. In Sandy Koufax's case, this was not the first time he stood his ground when it came to personal decisions. Who will ever forget when he refused to take the mound in the World Series on Yom Kippur? Sandy Koufax was one of those guys who was not afraid to speak his mind. He was not afraid to stand his ground. He was not afraid to show just how intelligent he really is. Despite the headlines of him declining to pitch in Game 1 of the World Series, because again, his observance to Yom Kippur, it garnered national attention. It was the example of a conflict between personal pressure and personal religious beliefs. Drysdale would actually go on to pitch the opener, but the Minnesota Twins took Game 1 in big fashion. However, the Dodgers went on to win the series. March 30th, 1992. The White Sox trade Sammy Sosa and pitcher Ken Patterson to the crosstown rival Cubs in exchange for 32-year-old all-star slugger George Bell who spends two seasons with his new team before retiring. Sosa will pass Ernie Banks as the franchise's all-time home run leader, going deep 545 times during his 13-year tenure with the Northsiders. On March 30, 1992, the Crosstown rivals in Chicago via the Cubs and via the White Sox would exchange ballplayers. All-star George Bell would be traded to the Chicago White Sox, and the Cubs in turn would get a little-known right fielder at the time, Sammy Sosa. Sammy Sosa became an all-star in the Chicago Cubs uniform as he spent 13 years in their uniform. But of course, he's most remembered for the home run chase of the great Roger Maris in 1998 and again in 1999, as him and fellow all-star from the St. Louis Cardinals, Mark McGuire, will challenge the record. But summer 1998 was fun to watch Tuman blast home run after home run, and including when Sammy Sosa passed Mr. Cub Ernie Banks as he blasted home run 545. Mark McGuire would break the record at 70, and Sammy Sosa would break it at 66. A year later, 1999, they'd do the chase all over again, with Slam and Sammy hitting 62, and Mark McGuire hitting 66. After a long time in Chicago, Sammy Sosa would, would, would find himself on, on two other teams, the Baltimore Orioles and the Texas Rangers. He eventually retired in 2007. And whether or not Slamming Sammy Sosa makes the Baseball Hall of Fame is unknown. But what is known in Chicago is this. Their right fielder was their hero. I've watched Sammy Sosa play baseball several times here in New York City at Chase Stadium. Always a gentleman to the fans, always a gentleman's opponents, and always a gentleman to his teammates. The quiet Dominican Republican will always be remembered for his love of the game, and as, a, and as a direct quote, baseball has been very, very good to me. Despite the fact being a part of the steroid scandal that would haunt him later on in, later on in his career, 
Baseball fans will always remember the 1998-1999 home run chase, always remember him as being a gentle man and a gentle giant. Slamming Sammy Sosa will always be remembered for the way he played the game, as a gentleman and with honor. I am Mark Robbins, this is Horsehide to Cowhide. We thank you so much, and as always, we will see you real soon. March 30th, 1993. After 43 years, Peanuts character Charlie Brown finally hits a home run. A game-winning round-tripper batting against his nemesis, Roy Ann Hobbs. Almost 10% of the nearly 18,000 Peanuts strips created by Charles Sulch focused on baseball. March 31st, 1948. At Ebbets Field number 2, the Dodgers play their first exhibition game at Dodgertown in Vero Beach, which will remain the team's home for 61 years. Amidst much fanfare, including Governor Millard Caldwell throwing the ceremonial first pitch, Jackie Robinson homers in the first inning when Brooklyn beats its top farm club, the Montreal Royals, 5-4. March 31, 1958. Larry Doby returns to the Indians when the Orioles trade him to Cleveland, along with Don Ferris in exchange for Gene Woodling, Dick Williams, and Bud Daly. The 34-year-old veteran outfielder who broke in with the tribe in 1947 as the American League's first black player will have a solid season hitting 284 in a part-time role with a fourth-place team. March 31st, 1994. The White Sox assign NBA superstar Michael Jordan to the Birmingham Barons of the Class AA Southern League. Before returning to the NBA, the 31-year-old outfielder will play just one season of professional baseball, hitting 202 in 134 games for the minor league club. Michael Jordan switched gears on this week in 1994, going from basketball to baseball. On February 7th, he signed a minor league contract to play with the Chicago White Sox. Jordan had just retired from basketball after leading the Bulls to three straight championships. He was 30 years old at the time. April 1st, 1950. Pacific Coast League Hollywood stars wear shorts and rayon shirts as their opening day uniforms. In 1976, the White Sox will also don shorts in the first game of a doubleheader against Kansas City. April 1st, 1996. Nationalpastime.com appears for the first time on the internet. The popular website is the first ever to feature baseball history on a daily basis. April 1st, 1996. The postponement of Cincinnati's opening day game becomes necessary after home plate ump John McSherry, working his 26th season in the major leagues, suffers a fatal heart attack after calling the first seven pitches of the contest. The death of the respected but noticeably overweight veteran arbitrator prompts Major League Baseball to compel its umpires to become more physically fit. 
They had come 50,000 fans to witness the rebirth of the baseball season. Instead, they became witness to a tragic death. Just seven pitches into the new season, home plate umpire John McSherry motioned to the second base umpire, then turned, walked a few steps, and collapsed. Neither paramedics at the stadium nor doctors at University Hospital were able to revive him. And shortly after 3 p.m., pronounced the 51-year-old veteran umpire dead of heart failure. He was giving multiple drugs. He was shocked multiple times when the uh, rhythm indicated that it was needed. And when I say everything was done, I mean drugs, electricity, everything we do for anyone that, whose heart stops was done for this gentleman. The sold-out crowd waited anxiously for an hour before the official word came. The game would be postponed. March 1st, 2001. In the first major league game ever played in Puerto Rico, the Blue Jays defeat the Rangers 8-1 in the major league season opener. In his debut with Texas, $252 million shortstop Alex Rodriguez gets the first season's hit and scores the first run, but also makes a throwing error on his first chance. Two down, nobody on. Base hit. So on his first at bat as a Texas Ranger, Alex Rodriguez gets only the third opening day base hit of his career. He'd had only two opening day hits in 21 opening day at bats before today. With the San Diego. Delgado, nice pickup. Punch covering. And the ball game is over. One last note of frustration as the Rangers go 0 for 10 tonight in their advance with men in scoring position and a moment to save the first major league win as a manager. Former colleague Buck Martinez, thanks, Rich. Who said it was imperative for the Jays to get off to a good start for one night anyway. They have done so with an eight-to-one thrashing of the Texas Rangers. April second, nineteen seventy-two. Hank Aaron, Rico Cardi, and Orlando Sopeda all start in an exhibition game. The contest marks the first time the trio of sluggers sidelined with a variety of injuries over the past two seasons, has appeared together in the Braves lineup since 1970. April 2nd, 1982. During an exhibition contest at Jack Murphy Stadium, Steve McCaddy steps to home plate with a 15-inch toy bat as instructed by A's manager Billy Martin, who is furious that a DH isn't being allowed because the meaningless game is taking place in a National League park. After plate umpire Jim Quick refuses to let the Oakland starter use the prop, the right-hander takes three cold strikes with a real bat. April 2nd, 1996. Tiger first baseman Cecil Fielder steals the first base of his 11-year career in his 1,097th Major League game establishing the longest duration a player has ever gone without recording a stolen base. The feat is so unexpected that the Metrodome crowd gives Big Daddy a standing ovation, to which he responds with a good-natured tip of the helmet. Yeah, you don't get those kind too often. Ball three, strike two. Cecil's running. He struck him out, and he did it. For stolen he did base it. for Cecil. Get that ball. Get that base. 
Us. Get that base. He wants the base. That's what he said. He said, I want the base. Well, he went in hard. Oh, my. That gave him a standing ovation. Look at the people. Oh, I think he might have been out yeah, if he, caught, I, I if he, he held on to the ball. Now, they give him a stolen base or an error. No, no error. <laughs> no, you can't. He wants the base. Look, he's pointing to the base. I want it. <laughs> You'll have to come and get it tomorrow, Cecil, or after the game. Yeah, they announced it. And he's getting a standing ovation now from this crowd. <laughs> Look at it. All right. And the catcher feels like going behind. Boy, that's right. Myers, uh, he'll never hear the end of it. That concludes this week's episode of Horsite's Cowhide, America's Pastime. We thank Alex, the Bear Man from Texas, Mark Braverman, and Enzo Pontrelli for their contributions to this week's show. For all of the media that we've used under the Fair Usage Act, credits go to NBC Sports, SNY, WPIX, Major League Baseball, ComingToAmericaBaseball.com, AP Archive, NationalPastime.com, and more. Tune in again next week for another edition of Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastime. Looking for his first two of the year. Oh. He drives one, deep left field. Back goes Upton, back near the wall. It's out of here. Bartolo has done it. The impossible has happened.